And so to begin to say, well, wait a minute, what kind of sense of self would serve me? You know, I maybe don't want to wear those high heels because it makes it harder for me to climb around in the studio. And I think that there's a way that women began to really take on a critique of representation because it didn't work for them. They weren't, you know, they didn't want to be fashion victims. They didn't want to be hanging on guys. They wanted to create a space or place for themselves, for ourselves. The ability to speak two languages, not only to speak, but to think in two languages. And each language brings its own set of rules, you know, and inferences. And I think it's that ability to think. Welcome to Articulated. I'm Marisa Burgoyne, Head of Reference Services here at the Archives of American Art. And I'm Erin Kinhart, Head of Collections Processing and Digitization. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. The glossy pinnacle of print advertisement and the rise of color television made for a media maelstrom in the 1960s United States. Alongside civil rights and labor activism, what came to be known as the second wave of feminism gathered steam as women sought economic, social, and domestic equality. While the first wave of feminism focused on issues including the right to vote and property ownership in the early 1900s, the second wave addressed systemic legal and cultural barriers to women's opportunities. But feminism, like other forms of activism, was never monolithic, and a diverse range of women adapted an array of strategies to strive for equal treatment in a system that was not designed for equality. In this episode, we will explore how women artists interrogated the concept of the image and its relation to feminism throughout the latter half of the 20th century, spending time with two artists in particular, Sarah Edwards Charlesworth and Celia Alvarez Munoz. Sarah Edwards Charlesworth was born in East Orange, New Jersey in 1947, and her projects probe the ways in which the photographic image conditions, constrains, and connects us. During her career, Charlesworth co-founded arts magazines, including The Fox and Bomb, and she often created works in series with archival or appropriated images in surprising contexts. Charlesworth graduated from college in the late 1960s, when many women started to challenge assumptions of and restrictions on their career options. Here's how she described it in her 2011 oral history with Judith Richards. I hadn't thought about being something at all. You know, I was just being me. That this idea that I was going to have to figure out what it was I was going to be what didn't, didn't appeal to me at all. I had always thought of myself as an artist, but I didn't think that that was another role I had to take on in some way. I just sort of was an artist. I, I ended up getting kind of depressed by this whole concept of, of having a career. I, I was pretty blue that whole winter. I decided to ditch the boyfriend that went to Yale and got rid of him. And feminism was very, beginning to be very present at the time. 
One of her breakthrough early works was the print series Modern History, which imports the layouts of newspaper pages while only retaining the pictures, with bright, blank spaces replacing the text. These selective erasure prints, which she made in the late 1970s, were provoked by the power dynamics unveiled and propagated by popular media. Charlesworth details the advent of the series in her 2011 interview. I used the International Herald Tribune as a base for the work, in part because I was traveling a great deal in Europe at the time, and that was sort of my newspaper. So it was sort of like classic American point of view. What I was noticing was that at the main picture, at the top of the page, every day was some male authority figure, a king, a president, a general, a pope. And down below were various missiles and rockets and bombs and military hardware. What I recognized is that you didn't need to know president who, king who, general who, that there was a pattern even more deeply rooted in our culture, both of a power structure, but also a, that in terms of visual culture, there was a way to see that instead of getting all involved with what general so-and-so said, I took away all the text and didn't worry whether it was general so-and-so or so-and-so else. You could see that there was some big guy with a big gun and lots of badges telling us what's happening every day. So I, I decided to make a piece based on that recognition. From 1983 through 1988, Charlesworth created a five-part series of prints, Objects of Desire, which appropriate images as cutouts atop colorful, glossy backgrounds in matching lacquered frames. From a stag's head with ten-point antlers imposed over scarlet to a crop of blonde curls against a black background, the slick surfaces propel their subjects out of the frame. Charlesworth printed these as sebachromes, a process that deeply infuses dye to forestall color deterioration. Radiating with their backgrounds, the images feel iconic, and Charlesworth takes these objects of desire as lines of inquiry into our associations with everyday things. In the push and pull of the symbol and the vibrant negative space around it, the works measure the force of the images that emblematize and embody our social realities. Charlesworth outlined the project in her oral history with interviewer Judith Richards. I had been interested in, in the sense that I was interested in how formal qualities affect meaning. I was beginning to be interested in color. So what I did was I began collecting, I had colored boxes in my studio and one box was red and one box was black and one was white. And I just began tearing all the white things out of different magazines and putting them over there and tearing all the red things out of the magazines and putting them over there and tearing black things and putting them over there. So I decided that I would do a sub-series about gender and, and sexuality first. And that was the Objects of Desire 1. So what I did was I took all, all the things that, you know, I decided, okay, my palette's only going to be red and black. And then I ended up throwing one with a white background in. But I was always sort of kind of setting a rule and then just the last minute breaking it. But one of the things that I was looking at in that series was I felt that before any individual adopts an idea of self or identity, that they're in negotiation with a visual culture around them and a culture at large, but that says, hey, you, you know, it would be really nice if you 
could someday marry your true love and be a bride. And another part would say, hey, it would be really nice if you could like be sexy in that slinky sheath and wear some high heels. And I put a glossy laminate on them because I was sort of mimicking that cheesy seductiveness of a fashion magazine or a porno magazine. I mean, they're different cheesy seductiveness, but the kind of, come on, come in here. How, what do you think of this kind of? And so some of the images actually even came from strange porno magazines. I wanted the viewer to be able to kind of go, oh, that looks pretty good to me, or yuck, you know? And so you can sort of see how these images affect you and how you think about these things. Several diptychs and pairs converge within the Objects of Desire series. In one couple, a golden bowl swims in the bottom third of a velvety blue, which sits next to a canvas on the same blue now supporting a Greek column. When taken together, the works invite the viewer to imagine their interplay. How do our symbols shape one another? How does context affect their meaning? Rather than pure subjectivism, though, Charlesworth was interested in the complex interactions between ourselves and our means of representation. What does it mean to make representation work for you? The two panels are interlocking meanings. In a duo, the meanings are meant to reflect off of each other but not be codependent. So, for instance, there's an, uh, a, a work called Bowl and Column from 1986. During, during that period, there was a lot of talk in feminist circles about women not wanting to be associated with the earth and with vessels and with some essential idea of the feminine. And literally, there were articles written saying women shouldn't be considered vessels, you know, and so who cares, you know, in what sense are we vessels, what sense are we not vessels, I don't know, but um, every skyscraper was a phallic symbol, a skyscraper, a gun, a pencil, a cigar. In this piece, I'm just, I'm just saying, here's a bowl, here's a column. You can associate what you will with a bowl or with a column, but they just, there they are, there's two shapes. And that's the way visual language works. You see one thing next to another and they become part of another larger whole. A lot of the play between the parts of images and diptychs has to do with visual similarity. You look at something, you look at something else, and then you think about what things have to do with each other. The, the whole pictures generation, postmodern, whatever. I mean, postmodern was a word that was in play a lot at that time. And I had a lot of disdain for the word. I just didn't think it was very useful. But then I began to realize that there was something fundamentally different about the practice that my friends and myself were engaged with that was different than painting hitheretofore, than fine art photography hitheretofore, even than minimalism and pop. There was something about the, the exploring ideas of representation that took us in, into a larger and more complex world. It was almost like the globalism of, of art. We were, you know, speaking many languages there. And I think one of the reasons why women became so important in that period is women, to a certain extent, had been excluded from language. 
I was doing the objects of desire. I remember, you know, in tearing things up, I'd see the, you know, what, what's this white thing here? Well, it's a guy in a white linen jacket holding a doer's scotch. And standing behind him is some sex pot girl who's leaning over. He's the prime mover. He's the guy. He's the one who has the drink. He's the one who has the linen jacket. And she's just hanging on him. And so to begin to say, well, wait a minute, what kind of sense of self would serve me? You know, I maybe don't want to wear those high heels because it makes it harder for me to climb around in the studio. And I think that there's a way that women began to really take on a critique of representation because it didn't work for them. They weren't, you know, they didn't want to be fashion victims. They didn't want to be hanging on guys. They wanted to create a space or place for themselves, for ourselves within our culture, a space where it was possible to be a prime mover and not just be hanging on a prime mover. Celia Alvarez Munoz was born in El Paso, Texas in 1937, and her artists' books, texts, installations, and photographs contemplate the nature of memory, language as a medium, and the duality of her Mexican-American heritage. For Munoz, art and activism are inseparable, and her work welcomes her audiences as interlocutors as she encourages critical reflection, action, and solidarity. In her 2004 oral history with Harry Cordova, Munoz recalls her growing awareness of women's issues. How would you say your consciousness of becoming a feminist emerged, if you would call yourself a feminist? Well, I was brought up in a home of strong women, (laughs) number one. (laughs) And um, 60s, of course, has to strong role in, you know, in shaping anybody who went through that period. But atypical, because um, the Latinas at that point, you know, were slowly emerging. Having uh, armed now with the art process and that, you know, spirit of exploration, you know, guided me, propelled me, and fed early on in graduate I started examining uh, my role as, you know, my, my own role, my own immediate role, and the juggling act that uh, homemakers, women, married women, you know, have had to, to deal with. And that became a commodity for the work. I mentioned, you know, the fact that my mother uh, was part of the labor force that informed it, too. Gloria Steinman and all the feminists, you know, that came to surface that I watched avidly <laughs> during that period in history, during the late night TV you know, <laughs> talk shows, and then starting to pick up the, the, the writings was, of course, you know, very necessary, I think, if you were of that age. I was, I came in a little late, you know, because I think Steinman might be maybe about my age. 
looked a bit younger, but um, kind of out of, again, that observer, you know, wanting to uh, become part of, of a participant, and the justice, <clears throat> and the injustice connected to that. Yes, I wanted to burn my bra, you know, <laughs> at that time, too. <laughs> indeed. So, indeed. Uh, indeed. <laughs> so, yeah. Lucy Lepard is an influential critic and curator who has championed women's work for decades and who has helped to build a community and critical mass for women in the arts. When I first met Lucy Lepard, I had to pick her up at the airport for a conference here at UTA. And I was, I think, and uh, I asked her, you know, about uh, her evolution. And she responded, I think I asked her maybe about her role you know, as, as an art historian, she said she was more politician than a historian. When she presents the art activity that is social event, more communal. And then she does mention, you know, she wrote the article for the Roswell Project and so placed the project in that book, in the Louisville Walker. In her 1990 book, Mixed Blessings, Lepard linked Munoz's work with that of other contemporary Latina, Chicana, and Native artists, rethinking the force of multiculturalism in the arts. In their 2004 conversation, Carrie Cordova, a scholar of Latin American art and culture, asked Munoz to unpack her relationship with heritage, tradition, and progress. Maybe you could talk about the sort of uh, being just an artist or being a Latina artist and the challenges or opportunities that are part of that experience. I was not aware in graduate work that this wave was being shaped, okay? That this wave was rolling in. No, and I did not make the works with that in mind, because I knew nothing about it. I mean, I was exploring, uh, like I told you, these other theories and uh, these other forms, timing, timing. You know, positioning is so important, too, in how you fall in that uh, wave of history, in that period of history. I finished uh, graduate school in 1982 and started, you know, continued exploring the book form, very deliberately wanting to expose books on both coasts. So the book went in through a feminist group, which was Women in Their Works, but uh, it extended into this new dialogue that was beginning. And I found out that I had to send my, my slides, my work, to, to different people on the West Coast that were looking for Hispanic, Latina, Chicana, you know, I don't know which word was used then. And so I did. And then this other exhibitions started ah, rolling and they did up until uh, all these were precursor to, to 1992 which was a quintessentenary celebration of, of or addressing not celebration depends on which side of the fence you're in to the conquest okay <laughs> so um, oh my god yeah it's very exciting too and before I knew it this word multiculturalism appeared and I said well I think I've been doing that for a while unknowingly you know for a while and and uh, maybe the works will fit 
there too. Then these exhibitions started surfacing and constructed and opening doors. Uh, the dialogue was fascinating because it went back to the 60s activism. So I started to do my research, you know, on, on the movement and where was I during that time, you know. I saw that it was leading up to something and that that had to end too. You had to, you know, come and be exposed and um, let's see how much life that had and whether it could live beyond 1992. The big um, grants were being fashioned and the large institutions were embracing that dialogue. An exhibition titled The Ceremony of Memory, funded by the Lennon Foundation, opened more doors. Not being derivatively Chicana work, but having an element of it, but being more conceptual, I think was accepted um, in some of these exhibitions because of the makeup of the panel, selection panel, that had a wider view. Um, not only was it the Chicano dialogue, you know, Hispanic dialogue, this ethnicity and, and identity, but the works were conceptual. Munoz's work pulls concepts like threads throughout our social fabric, finding connections through the intimate, the familial, the communal, the historical, the mythological, and beyond. In her oral history, she talks about her work's examinations of femicide and misogyny. I picked that up later on in uh, another installation called Fibra y Furia. Fibra was the original installation. It was done for Center for the Arts in San Francisco. And that was a critique on the fashion industry. Again, examining advertising. Okay, the fashion industry and how it constructs women or the image of women. I had been, like, since the Drawing Center project and, and um, the Embassy project, explore the, the, the feminization of poverty also. With the fashion industry, with Fibra, I had been reading a book on, um, you know, we're beginning to get teen suicide on the rise. And young girls, Kim important. My daughter was around that age too. All right, so so yes, life is is an ingredient that that's, you know that's part of the bigger picture, and we are a product of our times, as I have said. This book on young girls' testimony and Ophelia Shakespeare's Ophelia, who you know, ultimately drowned herself and was assisted by the weight of the garment. <laughs> she was wearing. <laughs> so I weave this tale, you know, this strange tale, and use fabric, per se, as the element. Bolts and bolts and bolts of fabric that were donated, many of them were donated by the fashion industry <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the snake eating its tail. And um, I design a series of garments that about the sexualization of um, the female. The center hires a seamstress from the San Francisco Opera to construct the dresses, okay, for my design. 
And I know that in fashion, I mean, what is shocking? Nothing shocking. Everything's been done, you know. But then I have to center on maybe the rites of passage and, and starting with like a very sexy pampers through um, a toddler in very seductive fabrics to the teen years, you know, uh, with the sequin crowd, you know, cutoffs to the prom dress, okay, that's strategically emphasized, you know, the breast and the crotch and the pompies, you know, in the back to what contributes to that sexualization and, and we become, then the picture becomes a little bit more expanded. And we go into, um, there's a rise. I mean, it has always happened, but, but there's supposed to be like more exposure to child abuse. So one of the garments and then the trans, sexual transgender issues too. Okay. So some of the garments are, are ready-mades that are embellished, which are like briefs that have, that are treated like tutus. A man's suit with the lapels made out of tiny pajama. You know, this is arrested, arrested development too. And then um, a candy man's cape, a large cape, you know, that has hundreds of pockets and lots of candies, you know, were stuck in there. And so the big space, the big gallery, which had been um, group show exhibitions, was offered as a, the first solo, solo show in that gallery and it was immense so it was a big challenge but it became uh, so experiential the project in that it wasn't something you went and looked at but something you walked through so the viewer becomes part of the scene I saw the garments and, and the fabrics as as the bait the design as the bait as the lures like in this underwater journey, this, this, this Ophelia thing, you know, started happening. And so the viewer could walk through the installation and become part of either the fish that swam in that, <laughs> in that ambience, in that environment, and later was turned into a digital photograph where we go more overtly into what it is, to this fire and water life thing, but it, it, it's still as a lure. One of Munoz's signature works is Which Came First, Enlightenment No. 4, a 1982 artist book that features images of eggs above grade school grammar and handwriting exercises, as well as Munoz's reflections on the dynamic between education, photography, language acquisition, and self-awareness. Here's how she recounted its development. It wasn't conceived for that. It's a work that, that deals with perception and lies, lies of photography, you know? And I'm always, you know, the question is, what is truth, uh, what is real, and, and the role that the camera plays in that was the argument there. I just used that story, you know, as the vehicle. In your grandmother's statement, how did she put it? it was, you know. No, she said, oh yeah, and it's like sex education. You know, and, and, and dealing with this generational thing, you know, which is really outmoded. When I was curious as to how a chicken laid an egg, and she would tell me that it came from its mouth or its beak. And the story says that I would sit attentively for hours to see if I could 
if I could witness the event, and that's, that's reality, that's the I in operation there, and that unfortunately they were just too fast for me. The photographer is behind the lens, so it's constructed, you know, and is it reality? Is what you're seeing real? Is it true? The picture presents a roll of eggs that in line, one behind the other, and um, you take it for granted that you're seeing a row of eggs. Uh, here perspective comes into play. You see objects that are closer to you appear to be larger. Those that are further away appear to be smaller, when in actuality they are not. You know, you take your hand, and which one looks bigger? When you put one in front of your face, the other one looks smaller, the one that's away from your face. What's real? You know, they're the same size, and you, you think you're looking at line of eggs that come from one carton. But they are, they all, the last image lets you see that they are in actuality of different sizes. So what's real? What's which came first? And then the language issue, you know, the verb, light, lay, perfect. I have like a, a practice when I'm problem solving, you know, or when an idea comes. Sometimes it's before opening my eyes, like the first waking moment. And this problem is arranged there in space, and I can see the pieces. And then, in motion, they fall. They start to fall. And then they start to find their place. And then they fit. And then I don't dare stir until they all fall into and then I wake up, and then I write it down. You know, sometimes they come that way. Uh -huh. But it's this placement, this arrangement, you know, <laughs> of things, and then it's locking. And I love puzzle as a kid, too. And it's those three-dimensional puzzle. Sometimes you seem to treat language <clears throat> like a puzzle. And where did you sort of build that skill for puns and language and the multiple... I think it's being able to, ability to speak two languages, not only to speak, but to think in two languages. And each language brings its own set of rules, you know, and inferences. And, and I think it's that ability to think, you know, that the family was language bent and still, you know, they're, they're articulate. Just the love, maybe, maybe the reading, the early reading, the respect for the written word, uh huh, and it just a natural tendency to write and the copywriting, all of that. You know, like I told you, nothing, nothing is lost. But I think it's that that ability to speak, even though single language writers, you know, some better, better qualified <laughs> people might be monolingual. Which came first, you know? What, what is it? What is it? No, it's just the love. It's just the natural respect for the word. Then there was commentary about uh, what it was for kids to grow up in suburbia. What what it was being a uh, soccer mom in wanting your children to be individuals, yet putting them in these groups, you know, where they're patterned and, and programmed to a degree by the time, you know, the enlightenment. The Enlightenment series came around. 
by that time, I knew that it was material that I could use, that I could work with in order to elevate these concepts. For me, they had to be really formalized. Packaging, the lettering had to be text, not written, okay, but uh, printed. And still spinning off, coming from a printmaker, you know, yes, advertising plays a part, but I was a printmaker for many years. And that response to the ink, the impression, the paper is still very seductive to this day, you know, for me. I still love the results. I still am in love, you know, with prints. And so these pages became as close to a print as I could bring it, but exploring, letting photography come in into the picture, quality of paper, and that became important. So it was this this whole mixture of, of using everything, you know, that I have been exposed to and just utilizing those areas that I responded to. It's thrilling still for me to see that paper and that mark, you know, from the press. It's still, you know, in my blood, in my blood, yeah. In duplicating the Xerox machine, once you begin to enlarge, the image begins to break down. That's your advertising, you know, that's that's advertising uh, information. Yes, you you uh, see old lettering that, that has been small, but then once it's duplicated and enlarged, then you begin to see those the, the roughness of, you know, a curve or a line. And that is, that's romantic too. But at the same time, you know, it's telling. It's giving the history of the word as well as as and as the impression, mm-hmm. you know, and it's all about impression. The impression women gave and left was on Sarah Edwards Charlesworth's mind as she took a moment during her oral history to press on its importance and how oral history can be a tool to retain and protect stories that might be overlooked otherwise. You know, I've been thinking since we've been doing these interviews, it's it's like some kind of narcissist fantasy to like have somebody listen to you talk about yourself with some apparent interest for hours on end. Um, It's also a very strange kind of process of self-reflection to be thinking about all these significant moments in one's life. And I think that the experience of women of our generation in general is quite different than that of our mothers. Whatever class we came from, whatever area, geographic area we lived in, the women's lives of our generation were quite, quite different than the generation before us. And as a young artist, I felt like I was entering a territory that had been primarily owned by men in previous generations, with a few exceptions, that women, if they were artists, were either anonymous or folk artists or not 
able to really enter the public sphere, not really able to exhibit widely. So women make different choices for themselves and juggle different issues. But I think the possibility of having a family and children and a career and an income, an independent income, and being able to be fulfilled in a multitude of different ways. It's now it's a possibility for women, you know, and I think the women of my generation have contributed an enormous amount to art. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman for the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang, and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it or sharing with a friend or family member. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.